Have you ever found yourself in a very dire and helpless situation? The, the shock of tragedies um, is commonplace. You know, with the deluge of news, did you go numb to it? Four people dead here from shooting. A tragedy on the other side of the world is an earthquake, 20 dead. It just it, it this just comes. The onslaught is there. It's happening every single day. And it comes upon people with great surprise. I mean, just think about what we're commemorating today. 21 years ago, our nation was attacked and thousands of people were instantly killed. Thousands more, their lives were forever changed as their loved ones were taken from them. Thousands more suffering from health effects from, from that day. These are kind of heart-wrenching events that our world of sin is full of. And, and then there, there are the untold, the, the unseen sufferers. Over 17 million Americans suffer from some form of depression. Over half a million Americans attempt suicide every year. And those statistics were from before COVID. So I imagine it's only gotten worse. Our lives are going to encounter or know people who encounter great difficulties that they can't change themselves and left to themselves might entirely um, wipe them out, just crush them. I'm, I'm no exception to this as well. Many of you know a little bit of my early story. Uh, when I was 23 years old, so going back to uh, April 19th, 1991, um, I, I wasn't thinking about any kind of disasters or heartache. or My life was going very well. I was in my last year of college, and um, I was newly married, relatively newly married, and pretty much was obtaining all the life goals that I had set out for myself. So again, life couldn't be better from my perspective, but, but God knew better. And God was directing to my life that day a storm that would forever change my life. God needed to take drastic action in my life. And on that fateful morning, my, my wife Jennifer was killed instantly in a car accident. I was not involved in that accident. I was away on campus and studying. And forever my life was changed. But instantly my desire for engineering in fact, my desire to live was gone. God ripped everything out from underneath my feet, changed my life totally, and I would have sunk in deep mire because I, I didn't even desire to continue living. I had plenty of thoughts of, of ending my life. But God was gracious and helped me not to do that. Thankfully, God brought people into my life that showed me how to turn to God. You see, before that, I, I professed Christianity. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church. I, I read my Bible on a mostly regular basis. But I didn't know how to turn to God himself. But people, God's people showed me how to do that. And God taught me how to trust him through a circumstance that I wanted desperately to change. I wanted desperately out of it, but there was no way out. 
I was either going to walk with the Lord through it or I would stop living. And the Lord taught me that he is faithful and can carry you through that. And the circumstances you might be in might be slightly different. I mean, the, the fact that someone finds himself to be a widower at 23 is thankfully relatively rare. But your circumstances that God brings you through are going to be nonetheless difficult. Are you going to know somebody that's going through great difficulty? And so my, my goal this morning is to, to take us through a look of Psalm 130. And Psalm 130 really gives us a, a nutshell on how to respond to events like this. How do we respond when these life-changing, despair-invoking situations happen, what, whatever they are? Psalm 130 is balm to our soul. And so let's read that together before we get any further into it. Psalm 130, a song of ascents, which is one of the songs that the psalmist would sing, or the, the Hebrews would sing as they moved towards Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Song of ascents, we think, because Jerusalem is on a hill, so they would go and ascend to the hill of worship to God. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And on his word I do, do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Indeed, more than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 130 teaches us four essential responses that we need to have when when these life-shattering circumstances hit us. That is, turn to the Lord, surrender to the Lord, hope in the Lord, and testify of the Lord. We're going to walk through each one of those uh, here this morning. So the first response that, that we must have, without this, the others, won't. it won't happen. The first thing we must do is to turn to the Lord. To turn to the Lord. You see, the natural circumstance, the natural bent of the sinner's heart, including mine, was to blame God. So the natural response is to turn away from God. You get angry with God. God, why didn't you stop this? That's the natural bent of our heart. I thought it, if I thought it once, I thought it thousands of times, and God knows that. But that is not the heart that's going to worship God. If, if we are going to make it through the other end of whatever circumstance we're facing, we must turn to the Lord. Look at those first words, the first phrase, out of the depths. Right? That was the first phrase of Martin Luther's hymn that he, that he wrote. Indeed, Martin Luther considered Psalm 130 one of the psalms that he called the Pauline Psalms. Not because Paul wrote them, but because they embody the gospel. Right? This psalm embodies the pure, free grace of God to save sinners and to change us and transform us. But it'll never happen if we don't 
turn to God. And look at look at where he's at, out of the depths. And this is why I'm talking about these really major events. I mean, these aren't minor things. These are life-transforming things that we can't go back and change. Right? Another scenario might be you have just committed a major sin against God. And even some of you kids, you can, you, can, you can identify with this. Your parents told you not to do something or there would be the heavy hand of the law rightly against you, the discipline against you. And you did it. And there's no way to undo it. You can't go back and redo these are the kind of things we're talking about. This is, and he says, out of the depths. The, the, the psalmist is using poetic language to say he's in a place beyond self-help. Right? Out of the depths, it's a, it's a picture of being in the depths of the sea. It's a metaphor for severe adversity and trouble. It's a place near death that is beyond any self-help. It's used in multiple places in the scripture. Listen to the psalmist again here, but this time in Psalm 69, goes a little bit more in depth here. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. You just see the picture, right, of someone who's sinking down. They can't continue to swim. The water's going over their head and they can hold their breath only so long. He continues, Psalm 69, kind of in the same theme of Psalm 130. He says, deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep water near the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Desperate. You know, we don't have them around here, but but there are such things as, as the the quicksand. And if you get into that, the more you struggle, the deeper you're going. You will die right there unless someone from the outside pulls you out. So that's the kind of place we're talking about. The more you struggle in your own effort, the deeper you go. We need God to act in the deep. Isaiah also mentions this, and he he mentions it actually in prayer to God. He's reminding God of his faithfulness. He says, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? You see, sometimes God takes his people through deep places. And sometimes he'll pull you out of that deep place. But other times he's going to create a place for you to live and breathe and go through that difficulty like like the Israelites did going through the Red Sea. But notice that that Red Sea was a place of life for the Israelites who had faith and trust in God. But it was a place of death for the Egyptians who followed in their own strength. God caused that sea to come over them and totally wipe them out. But in that place of despair, look, the psalmist says in, in verse 1, I have cried to you. I have cried to you. That, that's a call. That, that's not just the, the tear shed. That is a call to God. That, that is someone like who's drowning and yelling to the life to lifeguard on the beach saying, save me. It's that kind of cry. This isn't something like meek or mild. This is a desperate 
cry to someone who can save. And notice who is he crying to? He says, I have cried. And, and he says that, that I have cried. It, it's talking about something that's characteristic. It's talking about a cry made in the past. I have cried to you, but, it's, but the results of that are continuing on. The impact of it has present relevance. I cried to you who can save me. And who? He says, to you, O Lord. It's getting very personal. To you, he doesn't just say to God. He says to you, Lord. And if you have the New American Standard Bible, you notice that those the Lord there is in small capitals. The O and R and D is small capitals. Using the Legacy Standard Bible, it would say Yahweh. Why is that significant? Why is it significant that the psalmist says, why am I calling out to you, but using God's covenantal name? The name that revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. There he says, when Moses says, who am, I to, who am I to tell the Israelites? As he's getting ready to go to Israel. Who am I to tell, tell them that sent me? And God said, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And really, I am is a translation. It's his name. It should be Yahweh has sent me to you. So it's it's God, but the the emphasis of this is the fact that he is the ever present one. You know, my illustration of someone's drowning, calling out to the lifeguard on the beach. The lifeguard has to get all the way out to him. Right? Imperfect example. In in reality, when we're in these difficult places, God's right there. He's the ever present one. There is nowhere you can flee from him. Look, if you would, just at Psalm 139. Just a few psalms over. Psalm 139. I'm going to read the first few verses of this just to help you see that God is ever present. O Lord, again, Yahweh. O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So nothing can hide us from God. We can't hide from God in our sin. You know, most sin, most sin is done at night. Because humans can't see at night. It's harder to see. But God has no trouble seeing at night. He sees everything that's done. He knows everything that you do even before you do it. He knows everything you say even before you say it. He knows everything you think. But the point of it is we cry out to one who is there. Who can rescue us? He is there to uphold us. He is there to, to bring us out of it. It's to him that we cry out. But then there's something interesting that happens in verse 2. Look at how verse 2 begins. 
Lord, hear my voice. Now, if I just read that in English, if I read verses one and two in English, out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. You don't hear any difference. You have to read it. Or I could read it in a legacy standard Bible. Out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Yahweh. Lord, hear my voice. So in one case, he's calling out to the covenant-keeping God who is ever-present, ever-living, ever-ready to help. And in verse 2, he uses a different word in order to call out to God as his master. This Lord that's used in verse 2 is, is that master. It's that idea of you're the slave, he's the master. Right? So why is that significant? Because a master is to care and provide for his slaves. So here the psalmist is first calling out the covenant keeping God who is there and is able to help. He's powerful to help. And he's calling out to a loving master who has the resources to help. Who will provide for his slaves. I'm intentionally using the word slaves there because that's what scripture does. We'll talk about that. It's not bond servant. God owns us. We are his slaves, both in a creative sense that he formed us and fashioned us, and also in the salvific sense. But he's a loving master. He's the loving Lord. And that's who you call out to. That's who we call out to. And it's kind of interesting in this psalm, there's other switches like that between Yahweh right, and the use of the word Lord. So watch that as we go through that. And here you see his prayer. This is the turning. He's calling out to Yahweh, but he's also saying, hear my prayer. Lord, in verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Now he's not calling out in this in, 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 in exasperation because God doesn't hear. You know, the, the prophets in the Old Testament mocked the, the, the false gods. You know, mocked the, the followers of Baal because because they were praying and their God didn't answer. And he was, you know, Isaiah's like, um, maybe you got to go wake him up. You know, ring the bell. You know, what do you got to do? He's not listening. This is not that kind of plea. This is a plea. Lord, hear, hear my voice. And he adds on that. He says, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. All right, at this point in redemptive history, God didn't have physical ears. Jesus is incarnate now, so we have to be careful in how we say that. Jesus has ears. Now, they're not omnipresent ears, right? But the point of this, he's using anthropomorphic language to, to talk about God, right? God doesn't need ears to hear you. That's But his point is, he's asking God to tune his ears. You know, when you're struggling to hear somebody, I have bad hearing, and I'll often do this, I'll... I'll put, cut my ears so I can hear you a little bit better sometimes. Right? That, that's what he's asking God to do. Tune your ears. Make your, make your ears attentive to my voice. And, and that's, that's what he's saying. He's praying this. Lord, hear. Hear the prayer of your slave. The voice of my supplication, supplications is, is just a, a word talking about uh, a need. So it comes from the word supply. So we're asking God to supply a need. So the voice of my supplications, meaning the psalmist is praying to God about a need that he has. That need is, is dictated by the, the depths, the situation that he's in. 
And again, this is this is a common request that we see in the Old Testament. For example, Solomon in, in Second Chronicles says this. Now, oh, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. It's just a way of asking God to please hear our prayer. And how does God respond? No, sorry. No, that's not how he responds. In Second Chronicles 7, verse 14, God responds by saying this. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Talking about really the, the dedication of, of the temple, Solomon's temple. God's response to that is not, well, you haven't done this or that. You haven't done this. And, you know, his, his response to the person who turns to him, who calls to him, is, yes, I'll be attentive. And even Nehemiah prays this. He's, he, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6 says, Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night. And he prays that twice. And again, in verse 11, similar thing. So you turn to the Lord as your the, the great God who is, who is, who is there, covenant-keeping God, and as your master who is there. And he longs to hear your prayers. This, this prayer is, a, is like the prayer of Jonah that we read in, in Jonah 1. You can turn there for a minute. Uh, Jonah 1, chapter 1. Just listen to Jonah. And I know some people don't believe Jonah is actually history. But we take God's word at its face value. It is history. It is accurate history. And Jonah tried to run away from God. And God was not going to allow that. Jonah gets caught in this massive storm. The sink, the ship is going to sink. So he proposed, Jonah proposed that the men throw him overboard. So we'll pick it up there. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. That's Yahweh. Feared Yahweh greatly. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. I mean, think about that. What does that remind you of? The Lord of the waves in the New Testament who instantly stopped the sea. You know, when the, when the disciples were so terrified that their ship was going to sink. And Jesus just said, hush, be still. And instantly the sea was calm. That's what these men experienced. This is an Old Testament experience of that. Instantly. You can't walk away from that unchanged. And these men were changed. It says they feared God. They, In fact, that word fear is talking about worship, as we'll see in a minute. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And so for three days and three nights, Jonah was wrestling with God. Think about that. It's not it's kind of between the white places. But between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, there's three days, three nights. Right? He's mad at God. He's blaming God. He doesn't want to turn to God. But in the end, he knows it's the only way will survive and he knows that God will forgive and Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish and he said I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me I cried for help from the depth of Sheol 
that's right there next to death, and you heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and your, all your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Think about that. He was he was done unless he called to God. And God rescued him. That's, that's a beautiful illustration of what we're talking about. Now, in Jonah's case, God rescued him from that, right? Made him face some of his fears. But understand, that's, that's not the promise every time, but God will be there with you. He will never leave you and never forsake you. So the first response, the fundamental response that we must have when disaster strikes is that we turn to the Lord. Right? It's not a simplistic answer to a difficult situation. It's what we must do. It's simple but profound because God is the one who saves and the God is the one who redeems. He has the power to raise the dead, to walk you through that. Now, in my case, I didn't have somebody walking me through Psalm 130 as I was going through difficulty, but I saw people who were turning to God. And in God's graciousness, he tuned my heart to follow their example. So turning to the Lord is that first response, but it's not the only one. The second one is surrender to the Lord. We see this in verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> surrender to the Lord. <clears throat> the psalmist says, If you, Lord, if you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Yahweh, who could stand? Who could stand? The first point we want to see here is that surrender to the Lord involves a general confession of sin. And again, he's, a, he's appealing to Yahweh, the ever-present one who knows everything. And, and he, he's imagining God on guard for his righteousness. And in a sense, God is. God is the thrice holy God. And he knows all sin of all people who have ever lived. He, he doesn't research that he knows that right and the psalmist is imagining god in his holiness recording every sin every sin of thought every sin in word every harsh word every sin in action but it's just not all the negative it's the lack of conformity to the positive it's all all the times where he didn't do what he should have done the sin is both sin is both the breaking of God's law and the sin is also the lack of conformity to God's law not doing everything we should do and he's imagining that God is on guard and he's marking these have you ever seen a tree or you're walking through the forest you see a tree that's been marked with some initials maybe you did some of that sometime not asking for confessions right? what happens to the tree it's always there isn't it the bark doesn't heal itself does it it's always there. And so the psalmist is, is using that analogy and saying, God, if, if you mark my sin, I can't erase it. It's always there. Affecting my life, my past, and my future. So he's, he recognizes that what he's going through, whatever the difficulty is, 
is just. Okay? So whatever, whatever difficulty we face, okay, including the death of a spouse like what I went through, it's just. I actually deserve worse than that. Right? I couldn't say that at the time, but I see that now. And people often ask me, how you do it? I often will say, better than I deserve. It's always true. It's hard to see. And, and if you know someone is going through that difficulty, don't remind them of that. Please have compassion, okay? Have compassion. Don't be like Job's friends, right? If nothing else, just sit and be quiet and pray. If you don't know what else to say, be compassionate. They're, they're going through great difficulty. So you need to encourage them to, to turn to the Lord. But, but, that, but understand that, that iniquities is our sin. And, and, he's, and he's, he's, he's basically admitting. He says, if you mark these iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Who? The Lord, the Master. Who could stand? Well, it's, a, it's one of those questions that there's not an answer in the Scripture, but it's, the answer is obvious. Who could stand? No one. Nahum 1.6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. and The rocks are broken up by him. Isaiah 53.6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Going to the New Testament, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's true of everybody, even if you've lived a relatively good life, humanly speaking. You deserve God's wrath and condemnation. So don't ask for justice. Right? So you often hear that as a parent. Children are often say something like that to their their. Their parents, because they won't ask for justice, they'll say, that's not fair. And I sympathize with them. I said that many times. And I felt that way when I was going through this difficulty. And so will you when you go through these things. Because I saw people who were like, I I wanted to be married. I wanted to have a long marriage. And I see people that are destroying their marriages. I just like, why do you let one of them die instead of my wife die? Because God knew what I needed, right? But here's what I want to say is there's that recognition that we're sinners. And that's true of all of us in this room, that we are sinners in our past. God changes us, transforms us. But here's the good news is that he forgives. And we're going to see that in just a moment. Verse four, but there is forgiveness with you. Now, when we're going through some kind of difficulty or somebody else is going through difficulty, the, the, the difficulty or the surrender to the Lord might involve confessing a specific sin to God. It might involve that. That's what Job's accusers were accusing him of, of some specific sin. You must have done something to, to, against God in order to, to, for him to pour out all this judgment upon you. And it's true that God sometimes does that. God disciples his children as a loving father. We know that from Hebrews chapter 12. So it it won't take time to turn there, but Hebrews chapter 12 says, if you are a child of God, he is going to discipline you if you continue in sin. 
And if you persist in sin, he is absolutely going to discipline you. And, and he has all sorts of tools for disciplining you. All sorts of tools. And he doesn't do this to, to, as, a, as a cruel master. The imagery is that of a loving father. In fact, the scripture says that if God doesn't discipline you when you're pursuing sin, then you're not really a child of God. Because it shows that he doesn't love you. Because he pursues everyone that pursues sin. He, he calls them back. He brings discipline into their lives. And again, he has all sorts of tools to do this. But recognize when these kind of tragedies happen, they often happen not because of our own personal sin. You do need to examine your own life to see if there's something in your life that, that God has been convicting you of that you have not listened to. Now, hear me, hear me carefully. God's not going to bring something like the death of your spouse for unknown sin in your life. right? So don't let anybody tell you that. He would only bring something like that if there was specific sin that he had brought to you in compassion and you just kind of turned a deaf ear. He might do something drastic. But so he will do that. But understand that often when these tragedies hit, these massive things that hit us, um, God does it for multiple purposes and we may never know all the reasons that he wants, that he's doing it and, and the things that he's accomplishing through it. And so Psalm 130 doesn't, doesn't mention any specific sin. It mentions sin and forgiveness, so we know that that's involved. But it doesn't mention any specific sin. So it leads me to believe that there's not a specific sin. The, the depths of despair that, that the psalmist are in are not because of his own like specific sin. Um, but there is that collective weight of sin that is upon him. He, he understands that, that, that he needs forgiveness. The, the weight of his collective sins is, is just burdening him. I don't know if you've uh, read the, the story Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't, it's, it, it's a good one to read or listen to, uh, not just for children, written by John Bunyan. But what we're talking about is that, that terrible burden that was on Christian's back that made his journey to the celestial city so difficult. And it, and it wasn't until that burden was relieved that he could make the journey much easier. Still difficult, but that, that the lifting of the burden is, is the forgiveness of sins that the Lord brings. So whether you're suffering as a result of specific sin or not, you'll be encouraged by, by what happens next. You see in verse 4, surrender to the Lord results in forgiveness. This is the beautiful gospel. This is... This is really where, where uh, Martin Luther was talking about when he says this is one of the Pauline Psalms. Okay? The guilt is in verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you. It's one of those beautiful contrasts in Scripture. Like, like Ephesians chapter 2, which says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And you were heading this way and you were totally lost, unable to respond. But God, being rich in mercy, gave you life okay? through faith in Jesus Christ. Even that faith is not of your own. That, that's what we're talking about. That the Lord provides forgiveness. And so for a minute, I just want to talk to those who don't know whether they are in Christ or not. Okay? To those who haven't yet experienced the salvation of God, the transformation of the Holy Spirit. 
And I just want to say that you are going to experience some kind of deep despair in your life. Even if you live a, a really blessed life now, at the moment of your death, which you cannot avoid, you are going to be in a place beyond hope if you do not turn to the Lord. I mean, how, think about it. The Lord is, is appealing to you, even now through my voice. Forget that it's the voice of Mark Rice. It's God's word. He is appealing to you to be reconciled with him through the blessed sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And you too can experience newness of life. You too can call upon God, who you hated as a sinner, or just were indifferent to as a sinner, but you can call to him as your loving father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the forgiveness that God provides isn't, isn't like some earthly forgiveness. It isn't like the person who just takes sin and kind of lifts up the carpet, proverbial carpet, and sweeps the, the dirt under the carpet. So it's still there, but uh, just not seen. Now, God has a way of dealing with sin at a very deep level of your soul and removing it, removing the guilt. I'd just like to read Romans 3 to kind of bring this point home. Romans 3, verses 21 and 26 says, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But through Jesus' sacrifice, God can forgive your sins, take them away, and they're cast so far away that they're never to be brought back against you. It's not that God forgets them. He can't forget. But he removes them so far away, there'll never be accusations against you, even though you're guilty of those things. Because Christ removes them. Christ has paid the penalty for that. And all that is yours for believing in Jesus Christ and calling upon his name. I mean, there's so many sinners that have their best life right now. They have, a, they have a really nice life. Many of them, not all of them, many of them. And they go to their death unprepared. Don't be one of those. Call upon the name of the Lord. And you could face the day of your death and every day that you live with hope and peace. Being assured that God is going to care for you and provide for you and be there for you no matter what. And notice where forgiveness leads. Forgiveness isn't just something, oh yeah, I got that, now I can live however I want to live. You know, there are those what we call hyper-grace movement that's so wrong. You probably don't even forgiven. Anybody who's forgiven isn't going to continue to live in sin. But look where it leads in verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You hear the word fear, right? There's, there's two main definitions of this. There's being afraid, and there's the act of reverence, of reverential awe. And there's a mixing of these right here. Right? Some people don't like that the scriptures tell us to be afraid of God. Well, as a sinner, you need to be afraid of God. Because without the Lord working in your life, right? 
you're in big trouble when you see God. So he is always God. He's not our best bud, although he does call us his friend. Right? There's that analogy as well. But that is where that reverential awe comes into play. God is always God. But he is a forgiving God. And so when he forgives, it's so that we would worship him, just like the men did on the ship when they threw Jonah overboard. And the sea was still. They feared God. And God used Jonah's bad example to bring those men to faith, is what it seems like from the text. God wants us to worship. And fear is not often associated with worship of God. I mean, think about the evangelical churches today. It's a fluffy message and they want you just to feel good. Now, beloved, I want you to feel good. I just want you to feel good for the right reasons. I'm not interested in pumping up your emotions. I'm interested in feeding your soul so that your emotions are grounded on, on, on the word of God. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about. God is worthy to be praised. He's the God who rescues. He is worthy of that. Psalm 33, 8 says, let, let all the earth fear the Lord. All the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Someday that's going to happen. I look forward to that day. The world is not going to be in rebellion. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And all the inhabitants of the earth are going to stand in awe of our God. God provides forgiveness so that you might worship him. And I I can testify that God is faithful and did just that in my own life. Don't fight against God. You know, in God's mercy, here's how I thought about this. I can't bring my wife back. And I can't change the pain that I experience. But I can maximize the benefit of that pain. I have two choices, and so do you when you go through difficulties. You can fight against the pain. You can complain and fight against what God's doing in your life. Or you can embrace the pain, whatever it is, physical pain, spiritual pain, loss of a loved one. You can embrace the pain and say, Lord, do what you need to do in my life. Make me a willing servant. Maximize the benefit from the pain. Because you can't take the pain away. God's wanting to do something good in your life through you and, and to others. You can just pray, Lord, help me to cooperate with what you're doing. It, the, uh, I'm told the Africans have, have, a, have a proverb when they're in trouble. Lord, strengthen my back. Very different from how many Americans pray. Americans pray, Lord, take the load off my back. It, the African proverb is strengthen my back. And so that's what we're talking about when you go through these things. Lord, help me to, to walk this path. Because that's, that's God's calling in your life. You want to know what God's calling in your life? When those things happen, that's God's calling for your life. So you walk that path for his glory to worship him. But we don't, we don't leave it there. And I, I need to hurry uh, for this just time-wise. But, but notice what happens in verse 5. And this is the third response. You hope in the Lord. You hope in the Lord. The third essential response to these life-crushing circumstances that you honor God and and aid others is to hope in in the Lord. Look at verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in His Word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than watchman for the morning. Notice that, that this idea of waiting requires faith 
And again, it's for Yahweh. It's the one that, that waiting for the covenant-keeping God. This isn't a wait in vain. This is, this is a promise wait. He says his soul, he uses his soul to, as an idea to say his whole, his whole being is waiting on the Lord. It's the core of who you are. God makes all of us as physical and spiritual beings. The soul is, is your eternal part. That's the core of who you are. And God calls us to wait upon him. He is faithful. And the, the idea of hope here is so critical. You can't wait without hope. You know, if, you have, if you don't have hope, then, then waiting, you just think, is a futile effort. And, and, and this psalm is saying, no, it's this hope. I understand the biblical idea of hope. I mean, if someone here on earth gives you their word, they may or may not keep their word. Right? Maybe they'll forget, or maybe they'll break their word. And that's why we have written contracts and business dealings, right? to, to clarify and to keep pe- try to keep people to hold their word. God doesn't need that. God has never forgotten a promise. He's never failed to fulfill a promise that he's made that he won't fulfill in the future. Right? So he either has fulfilled it or will f- fulfill it. He hasn't forgotten anything. God's word is so true. Now, there's an example of this from David Livingston's life. Uh, when he was going on one of his voyages to Africa uh, as, a, as a missionary, someone in England asked him to bring back some, some um, like artifact, some like creature, insect, or something like that. And, and David Livingston said, said he would. Fast forward. He gets sick. Family, some of his own family dies there. Right? It's terrible there. The conditions are awful there. But he brought back that whatever it is, I forget what it was, an insect or some some little thing that that this person asked for. When he eventually made it back to England, he brought it. Why? Because he thought it was important to keep his word. I mean, if he hadn't kept his word, everybody would have understood. You, You face death. You face sickness. You face hardship. But he wanted to keep his word. You know, in modern society, hope is a dream. It's a chance. It's a, it's a penny thrown into a wishing well. That's what hope is to the world. But that's not what hope is to God. Hope is a sure thing. Biblical hope is a sure thing. Uh, in Psalm thirty-eight, fifteen, the psalmist says, For I hope in you, O Lord, you will answer, O Lord my God. You will answer. I just need to wait. I can be, I can rest assured, you will answer. It Romans Romans five says that hope will not disappoint, won't, will not be disappointed. Romans eight verses twenty four and twenty five tell us that for in hope we have been saved, but that hope that is not that sorry, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So hope is something that you're confident is going to happen because you're resting on God's word, his faithfulness, but you can't see it yet. So once you see it, once God provides, then you don't need hope because you can see it. But right now we have hope. So biblical hope is synonymous with, with faith and trusting in our Lord and in our God. And, and notice, beloved, what, what he says here in, in verse, he uses an analogy of the waiting more than watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than a watchman for the morning. It's a beautiful illustration of 
of this that comes from uh, the, the Caribbean islands who were part of the British Empire at the time in, in 1823. August the 1st, 1823. Probably doesn't stand out in your mind, but if they were alive, they would know, know that day because that was the day that they were declared free. No longer slaves. By declaration of the Parliament of England on August the 1st, 1823, they were declared free. And an account of that day said they didn't go to sleep. They stayed up all night. And some of them looked, got to the highest point on the island where they could see the sun breaking. They were waiting for the breaking of the dawn of the day that would make them free men, no longer chattel to be bought and sold. See the eagerness that they were waiting for that day? Never went to sleep. Last night as a slave, when that sun dawns, I'm free. Okay? That's the kind of hope that we're talking about. That day is coming. And the Lord provides that. So we turn to the Lord, surrender to the Lord, wait on the Lord. But look how look how the text, text changes. Um, and, and sorry, I skipped over verse 3. There's the analogy. He says, he, my soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the for the morning, indeed, more than watchmen for the morning. So the analogy is those those temple guards or the city the guards and the city gates who are just waiting for the breaking of the dawn. Because why? Because it's dangerous at night. The arrow flies and you not you can't see it. They they would they would just wait for the breaking of the dawn so they could verify that yet the city was safe and they could go get a good night's sleep. They were, they were just crucial, waiting for that for that day. And then look what happens in verses 7 and 8. No longer is, is the, the psalmist just talking to the Lord and to himself. He's talking to Israel. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So it's kind of odd, isn't it, here that, in this psalm, there's the, the psalmist says he's in despair, he's in the depths, but there's no there's no answer to that. He just says, "I'm going to hope," and then he starts testifying. He starts testifying to Israel. No longer is he just talking to God; he's turning to his his fellow believers in God, and he's saying, "Oh Israel, hope in the Lord." Has, has the psalmist's situation changed? Doesn't seem to have. And, and sometimes we're in situations in our life that, that humanly speaking, can't change. Right? I wanted it to change, but it wasn't going to change. You, there's something you just can't change. But, he, but, he, but despite the fact that the psalmist doesn't have an answer yet, he's saying hope in the Lord. I know the Lord's going to answer. The dawning of that day is coming. Look for it, Israel. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. Yes, there is a judge who has promised to judge this whole land. Okay? That's for certain. And he is already at work doing that um, through kind of a Romans 1 type of fashion that we see through our world, just the foolishness of this world. He is judging this world. But one day there is going to be the, a, a judge. Jesus is going to judge every single person who has ever lived. So that day of judgment's coming. But for those who 
plead for mercy, who trust in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. And he says there is that loving kindness. Notice the emphasis there. That for with Yahweh, there is loving kindness, steadfast love, loving kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. You notice, I love the words here. It's not like God's just, just saving just, oh, I only have a little bit of grace. I only have a little bit of patience. I'll save a few. Right? Now we know there are only a few being saved. Right? But God calls all. He has abundant redemption. And he doesn't get, just forgive like a few of your sins. He forgives all of them. Completely. Right? Think about that. Even your future sins. Though when you sin in the future, you're still called to repentance. But even those sins can't change your, <clears throat> change your standing before God. He's forgiven those. That's how abundant he is. And he says he will redeem Israel from, look at, from his iniquities, from all his iniquities, just to bring that point home. So the Lord forgives, and the Lord will provide. And so when we hit these circumstances like this, that these things that just devastate and change our lives were to turn to the Lord, surrender to the Lord, hope in the Lord, and then testify of the Lord. Encourage others to do that. And, and so you've heard this message. You take the message and you pass it along. You take people to this. Let them read it themselves. Right? The outline is fairly simple. All the words right there in the, in the text. Take them to Psalm 130. Allow them to read it. Walk them through it. Help them to see that the Lord is faithful and he will carry you through those great storms of life. Uh, J.C. Ryle is, a, is a, a writer of old that often is just so current. He's just so profound. He sounds like he could be living in our day and age today. And, and he said something as I'm just going to paraphrase this. He said that, that don't be surprised when days of darkness come. Because there are things learned in the darkness that we would never learn in the sunshine. And that's just the way it is. So when those days of darkness come, turn to the Lord, surrender to Him, hope in Him, and testify of Him. Even before you get the answer, because you know it's coming. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we just thank You that you're a God who saves and redeems. You're a God who loves your people. And you have provided a way for our sins to be forgiven. You could have just written us off, started over. But you chose not to do that. You chose to die for our sins. He resurrected a newness of life. So that our sins could be rightly dealt with and forgiven. And we thank you. Thank you that you're a God who controls all things that we can turn to you for help. We can call to you and you will answer. That we can surrender to you and you forgive our sins. That we can hope in you and you will answer. And that we can testify to others and be truthful about that. Because you will answer. Lord, use us as your people, as ambassadors of your grace, to communicate that message for your glory and for the good of others. Others who have who are yours, who need to hear this message, but also those, Lord, who currently are living in rebellion to you that aren't transformed by you. Use this 
Lord, in their lives. Use this message to draw them to yourself in saving grace. It's the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.